Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, welcome back to the Book Ride Podcast. This is episode 377, recording on Thursday, May 14th, 2020. We talk about book-related stuff. Um, our most recent episode was Fried Green Tomatoes. Already getting a little bit of feedback about that, uh, which I think once we get some more wrap-up, and the, the, the key questions around, you know, did you think Iggy was ninny at the end of the movie? Did mm-hmm. you understand gay? Uh, you know, did you understand that this is gay yeah. uh, is another question. Um, let's see the other ones. You know, what, what did you see it? What did you think about when you saw it? What, uh, pretty interesting stuff to see come in fun to do that um we've we've wrapped up our moms dads and grads window for getting recommendation requests in we'll be recording that next week for a release on wednesday so look forward to that as well um I mean, this might be a good listener feedback thing we were just talking in the pre-show we had a request that there someone's trying to talk a family member into listening to our show this show that you're listening to right now <laughs> and was wondering which 10 episodes would be the, um, you know, the deck to give them if they were going to to sign on board to listening over time? And we were both commiserate. We were commiserating with, it's hard to remember the weekly news shows like this. Um, they tend to blend together. The things that stick out are the things that stick out for a reason and may not be representative of what it means to sign up to listen to the show every week. But if you have out there a favorite episode we did, one that's indicative in a good way of the best <laughs> of what we do, I'd, I'd sure like to see it. I know it probably it's like a lot of the podcasts I listen to, it's the, it's the weakliness of it um, and the familiarity of it and the habit of it that's as comforting and reliable and pleasurable as the special event kind of show. Like I said, the things we stick out as being memorable are memorable because they stick out and are not representative of what a normal Thursday recording, Sunday posting date is. Um, but maybe we can crowdsource a little bit that ask people who actually listen to the show rather than talking to mics about it. Um, shoot me an email, podcast at bookriot.com. Um, we're starting on a somber note, but before we do that, let's, uh, let's do a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Disney Books. Do y'all like Caribbean mythology? What's more, a thriller inspired by Caribbean mythology? If you do, I got something for you. A must-read thriller that draws from the darkest corners of Caribbean mythology from acclaimed author Sarah Das, who crafts a chilling tale of magic, murder, and how far we'll go to protect what's ours. It's perfect for fans of Angeline Bully and Tiffany D. Jackson. So, unlike other people on the small island of St. Virgil, Selena Da Silva does not believe in magic. She has a logical mind. She likes botany. She wants to study pharmacology. But then her mother gets sick and she's tethered to the island and she has to make money. So what does she do? She cons a couple gullible tourists with these useless talismans and phony protection rituals. But then one of the tourists ends up dead and at the center of a strange string of murders. And the truth Selena has been denying can no longer be avoided. 
there is evil lurking in the forest that surrounds St. Virgil. Now to find out what that evil is, make sure to pick up It Waits in the Forest by Sarah Das. And thanks again to Disney Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest-paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Shocking news this week um, in the industry side. Probably as big of a story that won't penetrate the non-book publishing, the publishing industry world, right, Rebecca? Like rank-and-file readers may not ever actually hear about this or care, um, but it's a big deal in the in the publishing industry. Carolyn Reedy, um, a longtime book industry professional, um, the CEO, the current CEO as of her death last week of an apparent heart attack at the age of 71, the CEO um, of... Uh, oh, Simon and Schuster. Simon and Schuster. I was like, it's not <laughs> Harper Collins. Simon and Schuster... Um, a real sad moment for a pioneer, right, Rebecca, of the in the publishing industry. It is um, one of those folks. She was definitely one of those folks that in the industry we yeah. heard about. I've only heard positive things about her, um, and sort of a behind the scenes, not so flashy. Um, mm. You know, steadily getting the job done was the impression that I had of um, Karen, Carolyn Reedy from things that were written about her, from folks who knew her. Um, very much a surprise. Uh, this seems to have been sudden and quite a loss, I think, for the industry and a really difficult mm-hmm. time for anyone to be experiencing a loss like this. So I'm thinking especially of her friends and family and all the folks at Simon & Schuster and across publishing, because such a small world, very connected, um, who are wishing they could be together right now. Yeah. She has been CEO of Simon & Schuster for about 13 years, it looks like, coming up mm-hmm. on 13 years. Um, and, you know, it's it's interesting to think about the change she saw from 2007-ish. I think that she was named the successor to the mm-hmm. outgoing CEO yeah. in 2007, took over in 2008. But think of the... Kindle was just right. beginning to be a thing. You know, iPhones <laughs> were a year old, mm-hmm. I think, at that That's point. Wild. Um, what a time to get thrown in to um, one of the you know, five most influential chairs in the making of books in the country, really. Um, also, not for nothing, I could. I, I looked up to see who's the first woman to run one of the big, well, six, now big five. I would, th- mm-hmm. I would have thrown Penguin in there. I didn't really find it, but notably, you know, only she and Madeline McIntosh, um, the CEO of Random House, um, are the heads right now. Though, 
five years or 13 years ago, I think that number was zero. And maybe there was another CEO that I, that was exist, but I couldn't find a name. Did you happen? Do you happen to know I, off the top of your head? Rebecca? I don't happen to know that off the top of my head. No. Um, I think it, it's very possible, almost definite that she was right. If not the first one of the first mm-hmm. um, and was known, I'm, I'm reading in this publisher's weekly piece also for again, like the internal work that she did as the CEO on company culture. Yeah. Um, she was named PW's person of the year in 2017. And in that piece, she talked about work she had done to create more transparency between the highest executive levels of Simon and Schuster and the mm-hmm. rest of the people at the company with the goal of giving everyone a sense of ownership and gratification in the company's success and making them feel that they were contributing to it. And that like, as we know from running a very much smaller company, <laughs> is Mm -hmm. that's an important thing and not nearly as easily said as done um folks who worked for her it seems really loved working for and with her um again a moment of incredible foment in the publishing industry and the world at large with COVID-19 um add on top of that the death of your CEO and add on top of that that a scant three months ago eight weeks ago we got leaks that SNS was for sale Mm -hmm. um tumultuous time for SNS and I I hope hope over there over there over there's taking care of themselves and doing the the best they can. It seems like again we're pretty far from the metal on these particular things, but I've always heard of, I've never met her. I always have heard of her talked with great respect mm-hmm. and admiration in a difficult industry, a difficult position and a difficult time. Um seems to have have comported herself uh, with with grace and ferocity um and steadiness. Uh, in a, in in an industry that's hard to you know keep the lights on and and do what's necessary, I'm really sad to see this. Um, I have to say yeah. when this came across last week, um, if you if we have birdies out there that knows more about Reedy herself, um, or you know I guess succession planning, you know what else? What what her contributions were? I we'd be sure interested um, to know that here. The rest of the news this week is kind of. I don't know. I'm doing shoulders. Yeah, it is. It's kind of in between, in between a lot. I guess, Rebecca, what's got me interested in a, in a macro level right now is the the loosening up mm. or people trying to loosen up or people, are you loosening up or are you just um, bristling at the harnesses right now? Like, where are we in this thing right now? Um, there was a piece in New York Times this weekend about some library, uh, libraries, um, some bookstores in Texas trying to figure out how to open up. Um, I think it looks like even those places where maybe they would, you know, not be served slapped with a note on the door or something about this, about opening up that it's still a situation where the actual reg, you know, the actual guidelines are going to be trailing indicators are going to be leading indicators, not trailing ones of people's actual appetite to go out into the world and go to bookstores. I haven't seen libraries open up anywhere. Um, which will be the ultimate trailing indicator, I think, frankly. But people are trying to think, like, could we open a bookstore right now? And I don't know if it's me. I don't know if it's the world. I don't know if it's some place we are in the curve of experiencing this, that I'm finding myself wanting to... My, my better angels and my demons are fighting a little bit more about wanting to loosen up. Mm. Uh, you get where I'm getting at here? I feel like we're in a... We're first... We're kind of ready to shake it off, and people are thinking about maybe shaking it off. Whether or not that's smart is different. But the feeling out there seems to be a little bit of stamping of feet of wanting to get out there a little bit. Are you feeling the same thing? Yeah, I'm definitely picking up on 
that I'm not feeling it so much personally. (laughs) Um, I feel kind of like I'm going to stay put for a little while longer, especially having seen stories this week about um, cities overseas that had opened up already and they're going back into lockdown because, of course, the thing that happened once people busted out of their houses was that infection rates went back up. But this is a long time for a business to be closed or to be working at limited capacity. It's I think folks who own businesses are really eager to figure out a way forward and what that's going to be. And if you aren't able to do something like curbside or delivery, if you if you're a restaurant and you need to have people in mm. your space in order to be making your margins, I really understand that like champing at the bit to uh, to get going. And I think humans like this is just a long time for humans to be in their houses and not being able to be active. I feel I I do sort of feel that around me. Um, I got an email yesterday from a local shop. There's like a woman in Richmond, I think probably most cities have these who's like the, you know, the famous bra fitter in the town where like Mm. she can look at you and magically know that you've been wearing the wrong size forever. And here's your size. Um, And they are opening this week because Richmond is allowing or Virginia is allowing some places to reopen with a whole lot of, you know, physical distancing and masks and sanitizing and limited capacities with a bunch of different measures in place as of the 15th. Um, and they're doing appointments. And I've been thinking about mm. like, that would be an interesting possibility for bookstores um, to open up like one customer at a time or a few customers in a time slot, given yeah. like depending on what size the store is um, with, you know, lots of sanitizing and things mm-hmm. in, in and out. I think as more states have the opportunity and have guidelines, it'll be really interesting to see um, how that goes. The I don't believe that bookstores are included in what's allowed to be in the first wave here yeah. in Richmond. So I haven't seen what any of our locals are doing. Um, but I, I do feel folks like really feeling the urge to get out there. And I have to say, like, for all the fa- like, I don't have any desire to go like sit at a restaurant 10 feet away from people while everyone's wearing masks right now. But if I had the opportunity to like wash my hands a whole bunch and go be 15 feet away from my favorite bookseller in a bookstore that I like, Mm. I, you know, by appointment only, like that would be much more appealing. And I, I I kind of feel that it's, it's going to be, I don't know, the whole thing's interesting and it's all weird. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. And I mean, I guess the, the reality is that once, you know, at some point we were going to come out of the, the the most stringent lockdown period, which we were in, and we're coming out of that no matter. You know, it's kind of in fits and starts and unevenly distributed. Mm-hmm. But between that and basically COVID nineteen vaccines being universally applicable, available, and distributable and effective, yeah, there's a lot of in between, right? And we're started we're starting the starting, and there's a lot of in between, and there's going to be a lot of time and steps um, to get from here to there. I guess what it is is we're we're taking those first steps, or some people are. Like if Powell's open tomorrow, my local Powell's open mm. tomorrow, even with you know limited number of people and social distancing and you know painters tape on the floor, would I go? And I think I still wouldn't go as much as I, even may, maybe that having the choice to go would help. I think there's some truth to that. Mm-hmm. But just knowing you could, just knowing I could go, um, you know, what would be the first thing I would hazard? You know, outside of the grocery store, like. Our first story we're going to talk about here is about San Diego, San Diego libraries exploring curbside pickup. Well, I'd certainly do curbside pickup at my library. That's easy to, to get myself acceptable mm-hmm. to. I did curbside pizza. Like if I'm going to do pizza, I'm certainly going to do books. But what, uh, what if we had like sort of um, 
10 people in my local small branch by appointment with masks, let's say something like that, would I go to the library right now? And I got to tell you, I'm not sure. Even as much as I'm feeling the chomping at the bit, am I going to spit it is a different question than chomping yeah. on it. And that's kind of where I'm feeling right uh-huh. now. Um, what would it take? And I think that's going to be the fatigue part for me is certainly I won't wait until I have a vaccine because right. two years or whatever. You know, but when before that, when is my meridian of comfort for doing anything that's not essential? Um is grading on me a little bit. Uh, and I think it's grading on a lot of people and people have different lines. And, um, you know, I think people are, some people are being irresponsible and maybe, but there's also a case of being too conservative because the costs of being too conservative is people's livelihoods and businesses and, you know, economic deaths that come from economic pain are real. Uh, it's hard to know. And I, I guess I'm transitioning that point of, point of I'm in a bunker to, well, we're not going to live in a bunker, but when can you stick your head out and not get shot, get it shot off is, is really, really hard to know. Yeah, I, I'd be curious if other people are feeling that way. Too. Yeah, I think it's challenging, too, because like you can get to the logical place or I can get to the logical place of like there's nothing in a bookstore or a library that would make being in that space any more of a risk than going to the grocery store. It's yeah, like right. every I go to Kroger on Friday nights when it's not going to be very crowded. There right. are definitely more than 10 people in there. They're not all wearing masks. Like we haven't had a, you know, statewide mask order. We don't have many businesses that are requiring them. And it mm-hmm. like I am aware when I'm there that there's risk inherent because I'm trying my damnedest to stay, you know, more than yes. six feet away from the people who aren't wearing masks and watching, you know, what I touch and not touching my face and all those things that we're supposed to be doing. And it feels, I think there, this is one of those moments where like feelings aren't facts and sorting out the feelings from the facts mm-hmm. is really complicated because we also just don't have very many facts yet. And, no. and, or the facts keep moving. What we understand about this and how it works is still developing. And so like, what is a risk and what feels like a risk? are not necessarily the same thing and it might actually be like safer to you know go in a super sanitized bookstore one person at a time than to go in you yep. know, than to be in your grocery store i could see how that would shake out but it feels different because it's not the thing we've been allowed to do the whole time i think like there's mm-hmm. some endowment effect around like well the world is dangerous right now but you can still go to the grocery store that's like that's an okay thing to do when it's just okay because we have to eat, <laughs> you know? Right. No, you, you, I mean, your, your risk profile changes based on the requirement of the thing you right. have to do, right? Like we all know it's dangerous to drive and yet we do it anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we have a threshold for somewhere above zero. I did think about this the other day. I wonder what Daniel Kahneman thinks of decision-making in the world. Like mm. what, what kind of logical fallacies is he seeing uh, people make right now? Because I'm sure there's a lot of decisions that are new and they're probabilistic, and we know at a very basic level that even statisticians are bad <laughs> at making good decisions about probability. Yeah, um, and understanding writ large, especially when it'd be one thing if you knew how many sides of uh, the dice of this COVID-19 there were. Is it a 24-sided dice? Is it a six-sided dice? Right now, it could be anywhere between like one and 10,000 sides and the weight is unevenly distributed. <laughs> right. Like you almost can't make a good decision, and right? I guess that's part of it. I think that's part of it for sure that like the equation is this complex and inverse relationship between what's the safest thing for Mm. health and what's the safest thing for business. And every business is having to thread that needle of like, well, we could, uh, I'll use uh, Virginia as an example, since that's what I have access to that like our restaurants can't open up 
dine-in options yet, but patios can open mm-hmm. at like 50% capacity and parties have to be six feet away from each other. Waiters have to wear masks. The menus have to be disposable. Like these are the rules that we have right now. And there are places that are just doing exactly that. Like the this is the direction we were given from the governor. We are doing these things. There are places that don't feel comfortable opening at all yet. So they're not doing any of mm-hmm. any of it. And then there are places that think that that the floor and our governor has been very clear that like his his guidelines are the floor and people are welcome to build upon them for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other restaurants saying, you know, we're not going to open our patio up yet because we're still trying to figure out like, how can we actually build a pathway around our restaurant that keeps our servers and our customers safe and allows proper distancing and and does all of these things and the longer they wait the more money they're sacrificing but they're doing that math and i think you know in our industry bookstore owners are doing that as well yeah. it'll come down to like maybe we could open up at 50 percent capacity let's just go for it or mm. like well we could minimize and do appointments and all of those things cut into the money that you're making, but they go towards keeping people safe. And that's just a really hard decision to be asked to make. Right. And, and I guess that what got me thinking about in the context is this story about San Diego, because you know mm-hmm. a lot of the, the questions here are related to this you know, floating uncertainty. It's like the, the risk is higher than it was in, well, let's go back to October, because I think we're still learning things about when things got here. But like, okay, the risk of getting someone getting sick meaningfully from being a library worker are way higher now than they were. Do we expect or should we expect or under what timetable can we expect library workers say to experience that risk to provide the services that a library provides? So San Diego is thinking about maybe providing curbside pickup for library books. You order your books online, they bundle them up somehow, put them in a bag or whatever, and then you pick them up curbside, you know, whatever else that might look like. By now, I'm assuming most people Mm -hmm. understand how curbside things work right now. And they're saying, you know, Barnes & Noble locally is maybe opening up, local bookstores are maybe opening up. If those private establishments are opening up with curbside service, why, why, and and it's not a rhetorical Mm -hmm. question, I think it's a real question, why not library services operating under those guidelines? Why should the, why should the private sector be taking on, be willing to take on more risk than the service we provide? Because frankly, as we all know, as we all know, meaning you and me at least, that libraries are as important, if not more important, to the reading culture of a location than the bookstores themselves because of access and all the other things that make libraries um, special unicorns in in American cultural life. Um, Why not? What is an acceptable risk to ask of libraries? Um, If my library had pickup, I mean, this has been just a real thing in my house, is that my kids like to read. We're out of books. We could buy more books. We've bought some. But the library is an important part of our reading ecosystem. They, they're allowed to try, you know, they can try a lot more things. They have mm-hmm. more say because it doesn't cost money to do it. At least new out-of-pocket money. I understand our taxes pay libraries. Don't at me. Um, I think I would do curbside library right now. I think that's, that's one, that's a hurdle I'm, I feel is low enough for me to jump. I think so too. And I think that this feels safer right now than it would have like six or eight weeks ago, or if libraries had proposed this at the beginning, because we do seem, it feels to me like we have more information now about how the virus is most of the time transmitted and about really the fact that the risk of getting it from like touching a book that someone else touched 48 Mm -hmm. hours earlier is relatively low. Um, So I think 
they would obviously be talking about safety measures for these librarians. They're probably wearing gloves. Maybe they're keeping the books like in quarantine. I know a couple of um, places in mm. Richmond like that are used bookstores have been saying that they like they will take your used books because they need inventory still. And they're quarantining right. all the used books for like 48 hours or however long it's supposed to be before the virus dies off of paper if it happens to be infected um, and then using them. So I think there would you know, they'd want to reassure people that it was safe, but I would, I think this would be fine. I would do this. Like, I'm touching the bags that I get my takeout dinners in, you know, <laughs> like, I'm touching the yeah. bags at the grocery stores. Um, there's nothing more dangerous about a library book. And I, I guess the real concern is not to get, you know, COVID-19 from a patron who's picking it up or to get one from your library staff person, mm-hmm. but presumably that library would then need the circulation department to be open and you have people working in the same space even Mm -hmm. with gloves and masks there is uh, a risk level that's above zero um that would be there right i mean i guess if we had more testing you could test people and you'd know whatever but at some i mean the way this thing shakes out at least my understanding of it is there's going to be a time we need to get back to doing some things knowing we have a a low even as low as chances it might possibly be reasonably that we have a chance that being out in the world is going to cause some stuff to happen and what's fair to ask of a public sector library worker to do what's it what's fair of any worker like this is a big decision we were having all over the place Mm -hmm. right whether it's amazon fulfillment workers or nursing home workers or instacart delivery people um what is reasonable to ask people What, what is reasonable to ask people to hazard um, to provide services that people want, need, or were willing to pay for. Uh, it's just a very complicated question. And with a bookstore owner who owns their own business and can open it, they can decide their own level ri- of risk, right? They're, presumably they have some agency in it. The question becomes when you don't have a choice of either you show up to do this thing or you're going to lose your library job or you're going to use your bookstore job or whatever, then, then it becomes a kind of mandate or an ultimatum to perform the work. And it has to be somewhere between 0% chance of getting sick and 100% chance of getting sick that is reasonable to ask of someone to do. And we just don't know. We just don't know what's reasonable to ask of people. Well, yeah, and I think one of the reasons that it feels so uncertain and potentially scary is that when this began, businesses that were staying open were trying to create safe situations. Many businesses were trying to create situations where their patrons and their customers felt safe, but they weren't applying the same standards to their right. staff. Yep. So like, this is one of the complaints about Amazon warehouses, that they weren't making them wear masks mm-hmm. and that they weren't honoring social distancing or physical distancing inside a warehouse. And you can imagine how it's logistically difficult to stay six feet, to keep everybody six feet away from everybody else inside a warehouse that's used to like bustling. But like I've I've seen it at the grocery store. I don't know what things are like um, where you are, but it, you know, patrons are trying to stay away from each other. A lot of patrons are wearing masks, but our grocery store chains initially weren't providing masks to the workers, so it was like hit or miss on if your cashier would be wearing a mask. And they were saying, you know, like we have to come to work. There's all this demand to, for you know grocery workers, um, but our employers aren't taking measures to make sure that employees stay six feet away from each other or that they wear masks or that we you know, take any precautions that we need to take to feel safe. And I think if that had happened early on, it would the prospect of being back in workplaces might feel safer. Um, 
for librarians, like hopefully all of the for if you know San Diego Library does this or bookstores or whatever, hopefully all of these like ideally will roll out with not just here's what we're doing for customers, but here's what we're doing for our staff as well. And everyone mm. like I think the same standards should be applied to everyone if you're receiving the services or performing the services. What it takes to keep one of us safe is the same as what it takes to keep another one of us safe. So either mm-hmm. you can provide those circum those, you know, situations, you can provide the supplies or not. And if you can't, then maybe you shouldn't be open yet. Yeah. I mean, speaking of uncertainty, there's a good piece on Vox this week by Constance Grady, who you've maybe heard me interview in different mm-hmm. contexts for Annotated, um, talking to uh, Oliver Robinson, who's a neuroscientist um, at the University of College London, about, you know, people are, this is one thing we're hearing. And we see them in some of our recommendation quotes. I'm having a hard time reading right now. Mm-hmm. I think I'm having a hard time doing X right now is universally true. So I guess one question, is there anything special about reading? Things are just hard to Mm, do. mm -hmm. The only thing that's not hard to do right now is be anxious or um, uh, obsessively seek information to either confirm your fears um, or uh, allay them, right? Uh, Right. That's the only thing that's easy to do. Everything else I think is hard. Go down an Instagram rabbit hole. You know, and, and his larger point here is we're anything we're trying to do right now is we're trying to resolve uncertainty that is not resolvable. I, I mean, that's, I think that's helpful to mm-hmm. hear. It's like, there is no link you can read today, even if you found it, right, online, that's going to be like, you know what? I'm all square. I know yeah, what's going right. to happen. I know how I'm going to feel. Um, even if it was terrible, even if it was a kind of a worst case scenario, you still don't know, A, would you believe that's the worst case scenario? And B, would you... Um, you know, have a high degree of a high enough degree in confidence of it happening that your well, uncertainty would go away. And like being certain of the absolute worst thing happening is not going to be great for the feeling of anxiety anyway. No, no, but I mean, it's it's kind of like the the medical test phenomenon though. Sometimes you feel more anxious be- before you get the results. Now, again, you can get very very bad results. I'm not saying that, but it's a, that's a different kind of experience than anxiety. I mean, that's fear, that's sadness, that's grief versus anxiety, which is. Um, and, and Jeff Robinson's kind of metaphor is it's clouding, which I think is a very interesting mm. metaphor for understanding what uncertainty does and to cognitive function and decision-making and focus. It's cloudy, and cloudiness has its own kind of anxiety and own kind of experience that doesn't lend itself to focusing very well on depth, on, on persistence. So really, it's depth and duration that cloudiness mm-hmm. affects, which I don't know if anyone's read a book before, but depth <laughs> and duration sometimes is helpful. Well, that. I think it's important to note too, like I I do believe that all those other things are in the mix right now as well. Yes, yes. Fear is in the mix and grief is in the mix to varying degrees for everybody. Like we're all sad about something that's happened in the last eight weeks or just about the difference of how life feels or the things that we've lost. And some people are mourning people that they have lost um, or mourning jobs there's a there's just a lot that could be clouding and anxiety i think is a huge part of it it's i'm hearing this all over the place Mm -hmm. probably because we are people who work in books that it's hard to read right now um I'm trying to think if there's anybody in my life who's talked about like something else that it's hard for them to do. I just think in general, people are having a hard time doing those things that as you were saying, and as the piece says, really require like depth and focus and, uh, you know, sustained attention. Yeah. I mean, probably it would make sense that things that don't require depth or sustained attention or either of them probably are easy to do. Mm-hmm. You know, watching a light TV series is easier to do than reading a novel, no matter how light the novel is, frankly. Right. It just mm-hmm. is easier to press the button and let your eyes go. 
um, than it is to get anything. And if you're the kind of person that reads more difficult, more demanding um, in terms of, uh, you know, the burning of glucose in your brain kind of books, then it's even more difficult right now. But anything that is non-passive, and I don't think reading is passive, Mm -mm. is hard to do. It, It just is right now. I did think that probably more of us are going from garden variety anxiety to pathological anxiety, at least according to this definition, which is that's when it gets to the point where you're unable to do the things you would normally do more frequently than you would like. I think a lot of us under that de- in that definition are having some pathological anxiety at this point. That was interesting to see as well, that normal anxiety is useful and can be adapted because mm-hmm. it makes you resolve things that are uncertain and trying to make decisions and get things done and like otherwise get your cognitive house in order. But since it's irresolvable, we have this latent cloud of cloudiness um, that we cannot resolve, and so they cannot be productive. If I'm worried I left the garage door open, I can go back and check it. It may be a pain in my butt to go check it, but at least I'll have resolved the anxiety. Right. There's no garage door to check here, um, unfortunately. And I thought that was interesting, too. Yeah, that's usually like the one of the critical sort of like diagnostic criteria for is this is your anxiety a problem or like is your feeling of depression like do you have the blues or are you really depressed and one of those big pieces is are you no longer able to do or enjoy things that you used to previously Mm -hmm. do and enjoy and the other one is does this disrupt your ability to like live your life in the way that you normally want to like you know to spend time with people or to focus on your work or to get good sleep at night or all of those things and this is just affecting all of us like this pandemic is affecting all of us and the impact is so almost universal, so widespread that instead we get like, we should be talking about the mental health aspects of this. And I think you're right that this is exacerbating anxiety for a lot of folks. Um, I've been reading about like, you know, that we're heading into if we're not already in a mental health crisis in terms Mm of things that really might necessitate treatment for folks that they don't have access to precisely because we're in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, right. Um, But it also results in like, you know, all the articles that we've been seeing about, like, don't expect to be productive right now. Like, it just is, you know, like, with your brain chemistry in this moment, impossible to be as productive as you were in a normal time. And we're not in a normal time. And it's like, that is such a strange place to be where like, sort of the ground that we're all standing on is that the baseline expectation is that we can't or won't be functioning in the way that we're normally expected to function to be considered healthy. It's just normal and accepted during this moment that nothing's normal. And that's, yeah. a, that's also really hard to wrap your head around. Like, I don't want to be okay with feeling this weird, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, it's almost an impossible task to say, I'm going to feel okay about not feeling okay. It, it's, it's a, there's a cycle there that can be difficult to break, especially if you recognize it and be like, well, I should be feeling okay about not feeling okay, and yet I don't. Like, <laughs> Does that work for anybody to do that kind of mental trick to yourself? I've never found it to be useful, I've, and believe me, I've tried. I mean, I think that this related to another point that's so, I mean, that, that can be so insidious about anxiety, especially pathological anxiety, is that it might feel like, I should be able to read right now. I'm at home. I'm not going. Well, I mm. should be able to read and do that thing. I should be able to learn the trumpet and also Italian and also read the books per normal because I've got all this time and I'm not. So like, there's a, there's a meta layer of frustration about not only can I not do this thing, but this is the best time I'm ever going to have to do this kind of a thing. And yet I'm still not doing it. So it's a secondary cycle built on top yeah, of Yeah, that's below. rough. Like normally when we get, you know, when we do like Q&A shows and people write in asking about like, how can I make more time to read? Or I feel like yeah. I should be reading more. Usually the thing I say is like, let yourself off the hook because mm. like it only matters 
that you read more if it's really important to you to be reading more or like if you're unsatisfied with the amount that you're reading and what that's doing for your life. And I think that's complicated here because it would feel good to people to be able to read in the way that they normally yes, read. Yes, you, it's yes. just another thing of like, I would feel normal if I could do X. And here are the X is I would feel normal if I could sit down on a Saturday and sink into a novel for three mm. hours and forget the world in that magical way that books let you do sometimes. Yeah, right, that's right. <laughs> and I'm sorry, that's not really accessible right now. <laughs> like, I, w- I think like let yourself off the hook to the degree that you can, but it doesn't make it any less distressing because what we're mm. really after is not the, the ability to read. It's I can't read is a symbol and reminder of I can't do and feel the way that I want to feel That's right, right. now. Yeah. yeah, the lockdown doesn't end at my door. Right. right. Like that, that it, comes, it comes into the threshold. Um, the lockdown's inside the house. Um, <laughs> let's do another Literally. Sponsor. Let's do another sponsor break. We'll get in some adaptation news. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Penguin Team. In a world where the children of the gods inherit their powers, a descendant of the Greek fates must solve a series of impossible murders to save her sisters, her soulmate, and her city. Descendants of the fates are always born in threes. There's one to weave, one to draw, and one to cut the threads that connect people to the things they love and to life itself. And the Aura sisters are no exceptions. There is Eo, the youngest, who uses her fate-born abilities as a private investigator, but her latest job leads her to a horrific discovery. Somebody is abducting women and setting the resulting wraiths loose in the city to kill. Now, the second book in the series, Hearts That Cut, will be on sale June 18th, 2024. This is a must-read for all Greek mythology and fantasy fans. This is dripping with atmosphere, edged with danger. Threads That Bind weaves together a gorgeous dark tapestry of mystery, fated romance, and modern myth. You won't be able to put this one down. And that comes from Alexandra Bracken, New York Times bestselling author of Lore. So make sure to pick up Threads That Bind by Kitsa Hatsapolu. And thanks again to Penguin Teen for sponsoring this episode. Um, I guess this is going to be a big deal. I, I saw it come across our contributor Slack. I'm like, wow, that's a big deal. And then I immediately stopped caring. <laughs> AMC Networks acquires the rights to the Anne Rice Vampire Chronicles. It just feels like such a long time that any Anne Rice property has mattered a lick that mm-hmm. it seems hard to, like, this feels not like a vampire deal, but a zombie deal of, like, trying to get a corpse <laughs> to rise. 
Am I? Uh, that's pretty harsh. Uh, are you feeling anything similar I, to that, or talk to me about that? I feel very shruggy about it. Yeah. As well, like it's been a lot. You're right. It's been a long time since an Anne Rice adaptation has been a big thing that mattered. Um, but there is this perpetual appetite for vampire stories yep. <laughs> that just right. seems to exist in the culture, and so maybe it doesn't matter that people our age are bored with Anne Rice. Like perhaps AMC is going to do new takes mm. on these stories and get new audience for them. Um, yep. I don't know. It could be interesting. I mean, AMC does great TV. Um, so yeah. I will be, I'll be interested in like who they, who runs these shows and what it's going to mm. look like and who are the cast, but I probably won't watch any of it. It'll just be like, it's I, I believe it'll be good. me to imagine it's going to be something I would watch. It probably could be good. <laughs> like, you know, if it's vamp- if it's the Lestat Chronicles, uh, but shot in the 50s, like Mad Men, maybe I'm interested. Like you get to Matthew Weiner or someone like that who kind of has a mm. embedded twist and becomes a character thing. But like the period piece, New Orleans vampire thing is not my jam by any stretch of the imagination. I guess my closest analogy would be to something that is kind of a big reading niche. It's a big reading phenomenon, but didn't really cross over to the wider world phenomenon, but has found a a home online is the Outlander series. Oh, yeah. um, That there are people that are fans of. It's not out there in pop culture. It's like not a mass culture product, but there are several seasons of that. I know a few people that watch it, Mm -hmm. and that's fine. And Anne Rice could easily, the the Anne Rice Vampire Chronicles could easily have a life like that for many many seasons across many properties um but maybe there it shall remain on you know like outlanders on like stars or something I don't yeah even know outlanders on, on stars i do well, think I didn't it's, know well maybe yeah, it depends good job I, yeah. <laughs> um, I do think it's interesting that this went to amc and not to like hbo or showtime and you know hbo I thought that was interesting too. like especially because these are steamy stories that would benefit from or that you could like really fully tell with the kind yeah. of um, open hand and freedom that HBO and Showtime get. But like, HBO had True Blood already and they probably yeah. didn't yeah. feel the need to do another vampire mm-hmm. series and a period piece. Like it, you're, if they set it in New Orleans way back in the day, that's a another question. Um, right. be, so I think this is a maybe a move that allows these stories like they'll have to be a little bit It'll have to be a little safer. It'll have to be a little bit watered down. Like AMC still goes places, but not the places HBO can go. Um, be kind of telling to see how they position it. Like I'm going to be curious about which night of the week this comes on and what mm. comes on right before and right after it. <laughs> you know, yeah. like where does this go? And I guess that it doesn't sounds- matter as much in the days of streaming, but it'll be interesting. It sounds to me like ironically, they will have to defang the Vampire Chronicles <laughs> to put it on AMC. Uh, yeah, though some people will be very excited about this. Like these Uh have sold millions. I mean, it goes without saying, but maybe it's worth saying. These have sold millions of copies and was, uh, I mean, there's a Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise adaptation of this. That's actually not bad and very interesting performances. A lot of teeth and uh, Tom Cruise is a vampire. is just a whole lot of teeth. That's all I've got to say about that (laughs) right now. Um, but like there's a tent pole. It, It has a antecedent in the wider media culture. Um, there's plenty of stories. People have read them. Anne Rice is a bit of a nut, I feel like. But Correct. That's okay. People get to be nuts. <laughs> um, whatever. Uh, let's see. Another adaptation news that I don't care about. Netflix adapting the new Elena Ferrante, The Lying Life of Adults, 
novel that hasn't come out yet. I don't think it actually got pushed it back a little not. bit. Um, I really liked My Brilliant Friend. I did not seek out the HBO adaptation, which I heard was decent. I've got to say, I, I'm i not sure if I'm a median case for a Ferrante fever or whatever, but I guess I'm not that excited. I read the, the, the Neapolitan books and I really like them. I just am not feeling it translating and being excited about the next thing, which is weird. <laughs> but I guess we talk about this a lot of like, you're in for the penny of the first thing, like, but you may not be in the pound for the thing, the, the, the next thing the person does. Like, you might be in for a penny of Hunger Games, but if Suzanne Collins tomorrow launched a non-Hunger Games thing, how much of that is transportable? That's the hardest thing to do, mm-hmm. really, in all of media, but I think in all of books, is to launch a second tentpole series and get people to follow you along. That's what this feels like. Also, I'm not having a great time reading, and also reading about Italian adult feelings right now is not something I care about. <laughs> there I am. Yeah, this is just not a place that I can go right now for entertainment, but I think that a lot of people are going to be excited about it. Yeah. Maybe. Netflix, at, it's, at this, I think this is below, I guess what I'm saying, this is, be, for whatever reason, AMC acquiring the Anne Rice flotilla of properties <laughs> is newsworthy. But I feel like Netflix adapting X, unless X is wild or huge or important in a way that's bigger than this, doesn't feel like a story anymore. Like the, 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 the line has been moved up so much about something getting adapted after the gold rush, and maybe we're still in the adaptation gold rush mm. we've talked about before, that I'm like, Ferrante's a big deal. Netflix is a big deal. New book coming out is a big deal. Put them all together, no deal, weirdly. Like the sum of the parts is less than, the whole is less than the sum of its parts here. Yeah, the way that this piece was spun, at least when it was getting passed around online, was Netflix adapting new Elena Ferrante before the book is even out. And like, okay, but this happens all the time, actually. Like very frequently that manuscripts are getting shopped around to publishers and to... Uh, movie studios at the same time, either the novel gets sold, but then also the rights get sold before the book comes out. Like adaptations of literature are secured, at least <laughs> frequently, mm-hmm. um, all the time before the book comes out. It's just very rarely advertised. Sometimes before the book has been acquired by a publishing house. Like this is right. something we'd heard like, um, oh, what's his name? Scott Rudin. Mm-hmm. was famous for doing back in the 90s. Maybe he still does it, but I remember first hearing about this, of like buying the movie rights to something from an agent before the publishing house at, even had um, a deal written down for it. Um, let's end here. I think this is good. I'm very glad to see this mm-hmm. news um, that Publishers Weekly is partnering with a, um, a Spain-based company, Lantia, to produce a new magazine for the Spanish publishing trade, um, Publishers Weekly en Español, which I believe is publishers weekly in spanish not that i not to flaunt my spanish knowledge to anybody here news interviews pre-publication book reviews source from and focus on the global spanish language book market so publishers weekly in spanish i yep. think wow i you know it's one of those deals like seems like it should have happened already though i know for reasons that are both economic and cultural um it hasn't yet made sense not to tell tales of school we've wondered at what point if there, if there's a point where there should be a book riot in spanish mm-hmm. uh, um, or like how would or a product or a newsletter or something else like that. We know that the Spanish market in the U.S. is underserved, sort of across the board. Um, this might be a chicken and the egg situation where you need some chick, you need some eggs to get some chickens, you need some chickens to get some eggs. So maybe this will provide the beginnings of a change in the velocity of resources and titles and coverage and really the publishing ecosystem um, to be more robust for Spanish readers, both here and abroad. 
Yeah, I think it's awesome news. We've talked a lot on the show about how widely represented Spanish-speaking people are in America alone and how relatively few Spanish-speaking or Spanish-language titles become available. And I hope this will contribute to that as well, to just baseline publishing in the way that we experience the industry, um, calling more attention to Spanish language works. And Mm -hmm. I I hope that this is, you know, the first of many steps in this direction. It's very cool. Yeah. So check that out. It does. No, no. It says, um, no later than 2022, um, for, for central and South America, uh, distribution, but by this fall trade show, they hope to have the magazine distributed in Spain. Doesn't say anything about the U S which is Hmm. weird. Um, because but, I'm an American egoist, yeah. so presumably I, I the means. internet, though. Yeah, I don't know that they're going to put up um, uh, any kind of like geo-targeting, you know, fence around it. It wouldn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'll be curious to see um, how this how this takes shape. I know we have Spanish speakers and um, Spanish fluent people in the listenership. So, uh, other thoughts about this podcast at bookriot.com, Rebecca. That's a week. Yeah. Um, so let's see. The next episode you're going to hear from us are Rex. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope to get to everyone that sent us something. It's not a promise, but a it's worse than a promise. It's a barely, barely enforceable <laughs> expectation. Worse than a promise. Good show uh, title. Yeah. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>